The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning. <laughs> hey, uh, grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand up high and we want to make sure that we can get some Bibles to you. Uh, again, we're a Bible church and so we want to make sure that we can get some. We got one down here up in front. And one over here on the side. Excellent. Hey, we're going to spend some time talking through Galatians 2 this morning. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Galatians 2 and kind of stick your finger there. And, uh, and we're going to kind of continue this conversation uh, about the life of Paul. Now, being that it's Valentine's weekend, it makes me think, really, uh, of love. I, I mean... There's, there's some tremendous movies out there that really bring to light, um, you know, just the joy, the romance, the tenderness of love. Now, I know you're looking at a bearded man like myself and thinking, what is going on? He's getting soft on us. Well, one of my favorite romance movies, my, my favorite movies about love is, is one called Braveheart. Have you guys ever seen that? It's a fabulous romance, uh, and there's enough bloodshed in there to make me feel like I'm not going to lose my masculinity when it's all over with. Um, a Braveheart, Braveheart, for those of you who don't know or maybe haven't seen or maybe too, too young to remember when that came out because it was such a, a major hit, um, is, a, is the story of, of a Scotsman named William Wallace. He's a young Scottish warrior who, who really, he just wanted to be a farmer. He had already lost his father and his brother uh, to a battle against the English. You see, the English at that time, they had dominated uh, Scotland. They had won in war. And the king of England, uh, King Longshanks, uh, as he was called, was uh, just a, a real despicable person. He was a despicable character. And so one of the things that he did is he, he ordered that uh, the lords that were, that all the land that England had conquered the lords that uh, were under his, his rule could have that land and they could uh, essentially rule over it and live off of the people in whatever way they wanted to. Uh, but one of the things that was required of them was this practice called prima noctis, or prima noctis. Uh, this was the right of English lords that when any Scottish couple were married, that the local lord could take the new bride uh, unto his own bed on the wedding night, on, on the first night. And this was all in hope that the English could breed out of Scotland their Scottish heritage and their roots. That was the, the idea or the understanding. And so William Wallace and his love, of course, were married in secret to avoid all of the controversy that came with that and all, all of the degradation. So he gets married in secret to the love of his life to avoid this horrific practice. However, even though they had managed to avoid that trouble, trouble had come for them anyway. And one day as his wife is in the, the town that they live in, some English soldiers come through and try and rape her. William comes to her defense, of course, like any man would. And he fights off the soldiers and they, they try to make an escape. They try to run for the hills. Unfortunately, though, his, his lovely bride gets captured 
and brought back to town. And to make an example of her, the sheriff of that town slits her throat in public and kills her. It's really a, just a, a brutal, brutal scene. And, uh, and William Wallace, uh, at that point, says, I have to fight back. We cannot, we cannot live like this any longer. The, the sheriff, as he's slitting her throat, makes the announcement. He says, any attack on the king's men is the same as an attack on the king himself. So at this point, William Wallace picks up his sword and establishes a name for himself as a sort of Scottish... Robin Hood warrior figure. And in one of the most infamous scenes of the movie, the Scottish are lined up on one side of a battlefield and the English on the other. But the, the Scottish that are gathered, their whole army is smaller than the English numbers. And they're outgunned. They've got, um, they've got archers and people on horseback, and all these guys got are, you know, like pickaxes and homemade weapons and whatever else. And so they're beginning to lose heart. And as a matter of fact, they're not even sure they want to engage in this battle. And so Mel Gibson, who plays William Wallace, comes riding in at that moment. The Scottish are feeling outgunned and outmanned by the English, and they're beginning to lose heart, and he gives one of the most well-known inspirational speeches at that moment. You might recognize this scene here. I am William Wallace, and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as three men, and three men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Right? Against that? No! We will run! And we will live! Alright? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to train all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! you pretty much every man in here the hair on the back of his neck stood up there's a part of all of us that feels the need to fight for love to fight for what is right to fight for what is true and pure what is holy God made us that way now the passage that we are in right now in Galatians 2 is a moment not unlike this scene here in Braveheart. You see, the tensions are mounting. There in Galatia, Paul has planted this church 
on the gospel of grace, on the knowledge that God, apart from anything that man has ever done, apart from their good works or their ability to keep the rules, that God in his love has set forth his son to be the satisfaction for the payment for their sins in order that mankind might know him and love him and enjoy a vibrant, living relationship with God. Now, he planted that church on that premise alone. But you see, Paul had this problem because everywhere he went to plant churches, these people would follow him around that were, that were Christians by name, I guess you could say, but overall, there was a continuing pattern not to push people closer to Christ, but to pull them away from Christ, to try and get them to say, no, listen, yeah, the way in, the gate, the doorway, if you will, is Jesus. But the way that you sustain your relationship with God, the way that you continue to enjoy your relationship with God is through the keeping of the law, the keeping of the commandments. That's the only way. Because God is not happy with just Jesus. That's not enough to satisfy him. God also needs your adherence to these specific rituals. And right at the center of that was a conflict over the issue of circumcision. And there in this passage in Galatians 2, we'll be backing up just a little bit to get some reference in, in Galatians 1. Paul has been describing for the Galatian church his journey with the Lord. He wants to reinforce to the Galatians that the gospel that he gave them at the beginning is the pure gospel. It's the extract of gospel. And that it should be protected, it should not be added to, and that it should not be taken away from. So now what he does to emphasize this point is to recount four different scenes or stories from his life. The first one pops up in chapter 1, beginning at verse 11. So go ahead and flip back one page. It's not where we're going to emphasize our point this morning, but it gives us a little bit of context. He says this, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, and how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who, am set, who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Here's what he says. He says, um, the first thing I want you guys to take note of, Galatians, is how I received the gospel. If you're taking notes, that's our first point. How Paul received the gospel. You ready for this? Nobody preached it to him. That's weird to think about. 
Nobody, sh it wasn't like he got the story somewhere, you know? And, and now he's like, oh, yeah, Jesus, I, I, I get it. No, nobody preached it to him. Guess what? Jesus showed up in the flesh, knocked him to the ground, blinded him with the glory of his appearing. And, and, and Paul says, hey, who are you, Lord? He can't see anything. Who are you? He hears a voice. What's the voice say to him? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You know what that moment did in Paul's life? I mean, he had set himself to destroy Christianity. Matter of fact, he thought that in the name of God, he was now helping God to destroy what he saw as an aberrant form of Judaism that was not true to its roots. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and appears to him and says, you're persecuting me. Now, everything that Paul knows about Judaism has to make a massive shift because in his mind, Judaism cannot be compatible with Christianity. They're opposed to one another. So everything in his mind has to shift. He's like, okay, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So if he is, if he is the Christ, if he is the one, the Davidic king that God promised would always come, the one who will rule and reign forever and ever. If that's him, then I'm fighting against God's plan. And I'm fighting against God's kingdom and his king that he's established. Not only that, I've been killing his people. Not only that, I thought God was pleased through what I'm doing. I thought God was happy by my religious keeping of the rules, by the way I washed my hands, by the, the, the number of times that I fasted, or the, the new moons, the feasts, the Sabbaths that I was keeping. I thought God was pleased with the way that, that I would live my life more strict than even many of my contemporaries. He's not pleased with that? And he's pleased with these people who do none of that. And Paul's whole world is turned upside down in that moment. And so he says to the Galatian church, listen, listen to how I received the gospel. You know how I know it's the pure gospel? Because I didn't get it from a man, I got it from Jesus. He gave it to me directly. Acts chapter 9, for those of you who'd like to read through that story later. Then he comes up with the second scene. He says, okay, so immediately I didn't, I didn't go and, and check in with everybody like, hey, do I got the right thing? Because was there a need for that? What do you think? Matter of fact, if somebody would have come and said, hey, Paul, I know Jesus explained this to you, but it's not quite right. What's Paul going to think at that point? I say, whatever, man. I saw the one who is so glorious. He lives in unapproachable light and I can't bear to stand in his presence. <laughs> well, take your gospel, the thing that you're going to say is the authentic deal. You take that and go somewhere else with it. Matter of fact, the first part of Galatians 1, he tells them where they can go with it. And it's not pretty. It doesn't sound very apostolic at all. Then there's the second scene. 
The second scene here is that after three years, I went up to Jerusalem, verse 18 of chapter 1, to visit Cephas, which is Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's half-brother. And uh, in what I'm writing to you before God, I, I'm not telling a lie here. Then I went unto the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And then they glorified God because of me. So here's what he says, okay. Again, I didn't hang out with Peter and get discipled for a long season. For, I didn't hang out with the apostles and take all of their classes on how to live for Jesus in his kingdom. No, I, I was with Peter for 15 days. They were like, yeah, sounds like you met Jesus. <laughs> Same guy I know. That's awesome. And he's like, okay, later. I'm out of here. He leaves. He departs now. And the apostles don't correct him. They don't say, hey, you're a little bit off. There's, no, there's nothing that's happening here. They just say, we believe you've got the real deal. And they let him be. That's scene two. Now, in between scene two and three, Peter is called by God to use what Jesus referred to as the keys of the kingdom. That is that Peter, each time, is going to be there at that moment that God begins to open up, if you will, the, the gates of the kingdom in some pretty radical ways. The first time was in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descended upon a group of 120 people in an upper room. And there, God demonstrated the power of the kingdom, that the king would not just reside with people, but in people. And that the full power of the king would be given to his people. It's a dramatic display. People's heads lit on fire as they proclaimed the glory and the praises of God. And the church was born at that moment. Now, primarily though, all the way up until this point in the story, all the way up through Acts chapter 10 and, and the last part of chapter 9, the, the church has consisted of only Jewish people. No Gentiles. But then God comes to Peter in a vision. And God says to Peter, through a vision, Peter, there's some people coming to you. I've told them to come and seek you out. They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. And I want you to go with them. I want you to just go with them. You'll see. You'll know what to do. So as he's there... He has this vision of like a, you know, a sheet coming down. There's all kinds of animals in it, and they're all unclean animals. And God says, rise, Pete, kill, and eat. It's my favorite rhyme in the entire Bible. Rise, Pete, kill, and eat. Um, and and he, he says, no, 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 I, I can't do that. And he says, don't call unclean what I've cleansed, right? You guys know the story. You, you, you're tracking with me. So then Peter when the people come, Peter leaves with them, and he goes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile who was a God-fearer. That is, before he was saved, he had a heart and a desire to honor God. He was one who gave alms and loved God's people and loved everything about God, though he personally had not been regenerate. He was not saved. Interesting character in the Bible. Now, this man, Cornelius, says, okay, Peter, you're here. 
I, I, I heard that you were coming. An angel told me that this was going to happen, and I sent for you, and now you're here. We're ready to listen. He gathers his whole household, and Peter, once again, is there with the keys of the kingdom, and he unlocks the door. He just starts to talk about Jesus. Now, as he talks about Jesus, something happens. What, what is it that happens? Once again, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household in the same way that it did at the beginning. Now, here's what's happening. In the mind of Hebrews, the, the Messiah, the Christ figure, is only a Hebrew figure. He only has to do with the nation of Israel. They see him as being only Jewish and only for the Jews. But when the Holy Spirit descends upon these Gentiles in the same way that it did upon the Jewish believers at the day of Pentecost, God is through Peter marrying, if you will, the, the Gentile and the Jew crew. He's bringing them together and he's doing it under the same person he did it from last time so that the church can understand that this work is consistent all the way through. Everything that's happening has been God's plan. It's been his doing. And Peter, even when he comes back to talk about it, he's like, hey, look, I don't know what happened. I was, just, I was talking to them about Jesus, and then the same thing that happened to us happened to them too. And what, I, what am I supposed to do? Tell Jesus, you, you, you can't do that? How, how, do, how do I deal with this? He's, people were upset, like, hey, you can't, you can't share our Messiah. That's not cool. People are upset. <laughs> so now, here in Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches the gospel to Cornelius, and him and his entire household get saved. Now, in the same chapter, um, it, it goes on to tell us that, that the gospel just began to spread. And, and, and not, it wasn't just happening with Cornelius, but it began to move north into Syria to this, this city called Antioch in Syria, to the north of Israel. It's a, a coastal community, a port city, lots of things happening there, but a primarily a Gentile community. And word comes to Jerusalem that the gospel has come there. In Acts chapter 11, um, that we find out that this gospel message is, is busted loose in Antioch. And so the apostles send, the, uh, send Barnabas to go up and check it out. Barnabas, who was in Jerusalem at the time. They say, hey, go, go see what's going on up there. So Barnabas makes his way up there. And when he, he gets to Antioch, he's like, there's a full-on church here. Like, I don't even know how this happened. Like, people are gathering and worshiping Jesus and doing all the How did this happen? I think, oh, man, okay, so we, we need some sort of shepherd here. We need, we need somebody to, to take care of these people. I can do part of it, but you know what? I remember that one guy. Who was that? What was that guy's name? He came to Jerusalem. Saul. Doesn't he live up here somewhere? Was it Tarsus? Oh, that's right. Yeah, he's Tarsus. Okay, so he leaves Antioch, goes to Tarsus, which is fairly close, finds Paul and says, you've got to come check this out. What happened to you, Paul, happened here in Antioch. Same thing. Jesus just did something without anybody's permission. It was radical. So Paul's like, yeah, I'll, 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 go, I'll go check it out. So Paul starts his pastoral ministry there in Antioch. And Antioch is the very first place that people get called as an insult, little Christs. 
They get called Christians, like you little Jesus people. And, and the Christians there at Antioch were like, that's kind of cool. I like that. So they, they took that name for themselves. They, 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 they embraced that name and said, yeah, we like that. We're, we're Christians. We're little Christs. I like the way that that sounds. Now, Paul and Barnabas continued to pastor there in Antioch for a long season. But eventually what happens is that the Holy Spirit comes to them. There's, there's people who have prophetic giftings there in the community at, at Antioch. And, and the Holy Spirit speaks through them to separate out Paul and Barnabas and to send them now out of Antioch into the regions around to share the gospel, to continue to share the message of Jesus. Now, Paul and Barnabas leave, and they just they go immediately to Cyprus, and they go up to Lystra and Derbe and Iconium, up in the northern part, the north. If you're looking at um, the Mediterranean, the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean, they just kind of make this big loop and come back, right back around to Antioch. And they begin to celebrate all that God has done. God has planted churches. God even possibly raised Paul from the dead because at Lystra, he got um, rocks thrown at him until he was dead. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, he just stands back up. (laughs) It's like, all right, well, I guess we got to go back into the same city, preach the gospel again. So he goes right back in there, encourages and comforts the believers so that they would know that God is with him. And that they're okay, that they need to stand strong no matter what comes. And then he heads back to Antioch. When he gets there, he's sharing these stories. They're they're sharing all that God has done. And there's a lot of excitement. But meanwhile, Paul hears that there's some people who come up from Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, or to Antioch, excuse me, from Jerusalem, they begin sort of saying, hey, listen, you Gentile believers, I know you've got Jesus, and that's cool. But you're still not a part of God's covenant community. You're still not a part of God's people because you haven't undergone the rites of circumcision or the cutting away of the male foreskin and and made yourselves a part of that covenant community. That is the the covenant sign, if you will. This is how you get in. And the Gentiles are going, I don't know about this. They're looking at Paul, looking back at each other. Did we sign up for this? It's awkward. It's terrible. And Paul's going, no, 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 listen. If you got Jesus... You got it all. If you got Jesus, there's nothing else is needed. If you've got Jesus, you've got it all. (laughs) And here at home, Paul learns that trouble has come to the church, and these people are teaching that you must be circumcised or you can't be saved. So Paul decides he's going to settle the matter, and he moves and makes his way down to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. This brings up our third scene. In the first scene, we saw how Paul received the gospel. In the second scene, we see how Paul was received because of the gospel. And now in this third scene, here in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, we see how Paul was confirmed in the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. I was taking Titus along with me, and I went up because of a revelation, or in other words, because God told me to. That's another way of saying that. And set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. In other words, I wasn't there to embarrass 
or humiliate. I was there to, to check in with those guys. Hey, are we on the same page? Are we talking about the same Jesus? I need to confirm this with you because it's important stuff. So he says, I, I, I sought to proclaim, uh, or excuse me, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he, he was a Greek. So Titus, who's there, he's like, mm, no, mm, I'm not doing that. And, and they continue to argue over this issue, and, and Titus says, nope. I'm not doing that. I I believe that I have Jesus already. I don't need to to go through extra steps. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Now, notice the choice of words here. Listen to Paul. He says, false brothers brethren. Whoa. Now, I've been around church now for, for a long season, extended period of time. Uh, this is 20, almost 20 years of being saved, and um, a lot of time around ministries and everything else. And I, let me tell you, I, I have seen people come in with the best of biblical arguments for why they want to put other people in slavery. They can speak the biblical language like no other. They can bounce scripture back and forth. They've got all kinds of reasons why it is that you should only worship on Saturday. Why it is that you should keep this right or this ritual or do this thing. Why it is that you should homeschool your kids. Why it is that the list goes on and on and on. And part of me, you know, part of me is like, they're using my language. They must be my people. And so I begin to try and reason. You know, early on in, in our church planting in Cave Junction, it was over the issue of Halloween. We had, we had a harvest party, right? And uh, we had some people who had sort of a, a legalistic background. And, and um, so they, they really had a problem with us having a harvest party for the kids. And so I'm trying to explain to them, listen, I, I don't want to give a single day of our calendar year to Satan and say, well, he gets that one. Right? I, I, every day belongs to Jesus. Every day is a chance to glorify him. And I want families to come together on this day and say, no, nah, we, we don't do the world thing. We do what we do. We love Jesus. And I tried to reason with, I tried sharing scripture. We would bounce back and forth. By the time it was done, it was almost a church split. You know, in those days, a church split meant that about 12 people left, right? <laughs> Because that's the way it is when you plant a church in Cave Junction. But, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a big deal. Later on, there were others that, that kind of came through with the same thought. You know, I'm going to put people under a yoke of bondage. I had a really um, awesome family in so many ways, like a really tight family who was convinced that, that ministering to kids on their level was of the devil, that that should be all done within the family. And that, that, you know, it, it's wrong to send your kids off to children's ministry. It's wrong to have youth group. And, and man, they, for years, I tried going back and forth with them. And eventually, it just didn't happen. Because ultimately, what people want is to establish a path of righteousness around Jesus. That's what people want. 
I am good, I am holy, I am accepted because not only Jesus, because I homeschool my kids, because I don't have Halloween parties, because I don't drink, I don't listen to secular music, whatever. The list goes on and on. Paul tells these people here who are depending on another gospel other than Jesus, something other than Christ as a source of justification and being made right with God. He says they are false brothers. That's heavy, heavy language. Heavy. Why? Because they're not dependent on Jesus. They're not dependent upon him at all. And here he, he says these false brethren, they, they snuck in, they crept in, and they spied out our liberty. Now, I, I, I can't avoid this scenario, okay? It's here, and what, we have to just deal with it, so I'm not trying to be crass, but I, I want you to understand that. Um, the big issue was circumcision. And at some point, people have to find out that Titus has not had a certain surgical procedure. So at the public bathing house or whatever, there's some... Jewish people who are sort of just hanging around, like waiting for an opportunity to, as Paul puts it, spy out the liberty that they have in Christ Jesus, to check whether or not everybody is really a Jew. And Paul says, these guys were false, false brothers. They were sent to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. And he says, Verse 5, to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for who? For you in Galatia, church here. We wanted to make sure that the gospel would be protected and it would be, wouldn't be adulterated. And so, he says, and from those who seemed, verse 6 from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor. That was the very thing I was ready to do. So he said, we already solved this issue. I was there with the, the heads of state or the heads of the church, if you will, the big names in that day, Peter, James, John, they were all there. The issue of circumcision comes up, Acts chapter 15. We argued about it. At the end of the day, they added nothing to the gospel. They just said, hey, remember the poor. Continue preaching what you're preaching to the Gentile church. Okay, so there's, there's the third scene. The apostles added nothing and took nothing away from what Paul had been preaching. And now we come to our fourth scene. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Excuse me, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, okay, remember, 
Cephas is Peter. Peter's been down in Jerusalem. Paul has been ministering to the north in Syria in a town or city called Antioch. That's Paul's home church. Peter comes up for a visit. He's a welcome guest there. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? <laughs> Get this scene, okay? Here's Peter. He's the first pope, right? Here's Peter. He comes up to visit Antioch. He's somewhat of a celebrity. He was there when Jesus was crucified. He was there for the three and a half years of ministry. He was there at the resurrection, Right, Peter, he was there when 120 people had the, the Holy Spirit descend on them. He opens the door for the Gentiles as he preaches the gospel. To now, Peter is in Antioch. People are stoked. There's a little bit of excitement. It's a big church function. And so, naturally, as the church was doing often in those days, they had, they had a big potluck, right? Every time that they would get together, they would share a meal together at which they would share the, the Lord's Supper. They would share communion with one another. They didn't do it like we did with, a, you know, little cups and a, a wafer that was cut off that was sanitary and nobody touched. Like, that's not how things were done in those days. Um, but they would have, you know, a pitcher of wine and they would have a loaf of, of bread and they would take from that same pitcher and they would pass it around. And from that same loaf and they would pass it around. They, they would look each other in the faces and they would say, hey, this is what we share together. Look at what we have together. Look at how we're connected. We're one loaf. It's the blood of Jesus. It's cleansing us. And they, they were all united in this thing. And it's a radical thing that's happening. This church in Antioch is tight-knit and they've been discipled well under, under Paul. And now Peter is there, and they're excited to be able to share this all with them. Now, Peter is loving it. You see, because he's away from Jerusalem, and there you can't get a BLT. You know what I'm saying? So he shows up at Antioch at the potluck, and they've got like bacon-wrapped jalapenos and little smokies in the crock pot with barbecue sauce. I mean, he's like this. It is amazing. I love this church. And he's, he's hanging out. His fingers are all greasy. His beard's got barbecue sauce in it. And he's laughing it up. And he's complimenting all the ladies about how good their cooking is. And wow, I've never had a pork chop like that. You know, and, and, and things are going great. There's crab salad. And it, it's a joyous, joyous occasion. Until... Some people from Judea come up, some friends of James, and, and, and apparently Peter kind of knows these guys. Apparently he kind of has had maybe some sort of a run-in with them before. He knows kind of the, their character, and one of the, the big deals for them is that if you're a Jew, you don't hang out with Gentiles. 
because they're the uncircumcised. They're not a part of God's covenant people. They're somehow getting in the back door, but they're not quite up to snuff in the same way that Jewish Christians are. By the way, have you ever been a part of a church that has second-class Christians? You know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, you're, you're, you're saved if you come here. That's awesome. Great. Totally. But do you homeschool your kids? What's your, what's your stance on uh, secular music? What's your rating system for what movies you watch? Have you ever seen that? How we, we, we tend... Are, are the nature of humanity is to tie, try and put each other at some layer of strata, okay? And we're trying to assess where a person really is kind of all the time. And so we use external means to try and do that. We, we try and engage. The really serious Christians, well, they don't drink beer. The really serious Christians, well, they... They homeschool their kids. The, the ones who really love Jesus, they use a King James Bible. Hmm. Without realizing it, what's happening here is Peter is withdrawing himself and he's leading other people with him. And it's going to create a class system and fissure within the church. There's going to be a divide. And Paul, in his own home church, he feels the weight of this moment. When, P- when Peter withdraws, other people who have a Jewish background withdraw too. They're like, oh, yeah, okay. So much so that Paul's right-hand man, Barnabas, the one who went and planted Gentile churches with him, the one who stood with him in Acts 15 at the council at Jerusalem, Barnabas even gets caught up in it. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I guess that's not popular. And I mean, Peter's the first pope, and so I should be like Peter. And so, you know, he withdraws as well. And Paul realizes that this public sin is catastrophic. It's catastrophic. You see, Peter's actions will undo everything he has been teaching his people about the gospel. So, what does Paul do? What's he do? He gets some blue paint. He paints his face, right? And he comes in crying freedom. He says, this relationship that we have with Jesus, this is a love worth fighting for. This freedom we have in Christ is worth being stood for. So I'm going to make it all kinds of awkward in here. (laughs) Just imagine, put yourself in that scenario where you're just a fly on the wall, right? Peter's got his own table. Other people who are Jewish are, are coming over to that table as well. And Paul sees it. You hear him clear his throat. He stands up. Hey, Peter. Peter looks up. Yeah? If you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile in everyday life, just a minute ago you're eating bacon-wrapped jalapenos and loving our little Smokies, you liked the crab salad, you commented, 
to Gertrude about her crab salad. You remember that? You told her it was great. And now all of a sudden, you're going you're gonna to turn? You're going to say to the rest of these people, no, 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 you have to live like a Jew. But you don't live like a Jew, Peter. You hypocrite. <laughs> you ever been at like a family dinner where things get awkward? <laughs> That's what's going on. That's the scene here, right? It gets real awkward real quick. And everybody in the room feels it. And they just wish like, Okay, just stare at the wall, hope it goes away, you know. Like nobody really knows what to do. And then, and then he carries it further. He begins to argue with Peter and with the crowd that are there. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, and so we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. His main argument goes like this. Peter, you're being a hypocrite. You gave up trying to be made right or justified before God by keeping the law when you trusted in Jesus. When you asked him to make you righteous, you gave up trying to justify yourself through the keeping of the rules. He says, you and I, Peter, we left self-righteousness through the law for faith in Jesus. We left all that self-righteousness. I'm going to obey. I'm going to keep it myself holy. And if I do enough, then God will accept me. We left all that behind, Peter. And we exchanged that for faith in Jesus. And now, now you want to go back. When you already know that the law only condemns people, it never makes them right with God. The law only points out what's wrong with us, it never justifies us and makes us right before God. So then Paul is anticipating the next question that's going to come from that group that's sitting around the table with him, the guys from Judea. He anticipates how they're going to ask, hey, if we believe that we are justified in Christ and yet still sin, does that mean that Jesus serves to make sinning easier? Let me read to you what it says here. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners in Christ, or excuse me, be found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Paul says, hey, certainly not. That's a, that's a dumb way to think. Listen, no, I, I abandoned the hope of being justified through the keeping of the law so that I could cr- trust in Jesus. Now, if I go back to trusting the law, what am I saying about Jesus? If I go back to trusting and keeping the rules to make me right before God, what am I saying about the sacrifice of the Son of God? I sin against Jesus and say that what he did on the cross is not enough to make me right with God. Paul anticipates that they're going to have a problem with this, and he just breaks it down like this. He's like, if I trust in Jesus, I no longer trust in the works of the law. It's that simple. 
He goes on to say, let's read it together, verse 19, or excuse me, verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, the law torn down, right? Justification through works, torn down. If I rebuild that, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. You see, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. (laughs) He says here, through Jesus I died to the law. The sentence of my failure was carried out on Christ. The needs of the law are satisfied through his death. Okay? And now that his death has justified me and atoned for my sin, I am free to now live for him and with him. This gift of living with and for him is something that I won't trade in to go back to slavery. I will not nullify, he says, the grace of God. The gospel in Paul's mind, was the freedom to actually know God personally. Would you notice in these last few verses, we're almost done, so hang with me. If you're, if you're feeling mentally tired, snap back, come back with me, and, and check out just the way he changes how he talks about what Jesus accomplished. He, he moves away from legal terms, okay? And he moves more towards familial terms or passionate terms. He says, for through the law, verse 19, I died to the law so that I might live to God. There's the legal, clinical part. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's the atonement taking place, okay? And now in Christ's death, I'm united with him. And in Christ's resurrection, I'm united with him. And now I have this new life, okay? Now now watch the shift here. And the life that I now live in the flesh or in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who, what? Loved me and gave himself for me. You know, there's a shift that takes place in the lives of people. I think when my kids were little, when my kids were were little, I I tried to just teach them the basics of the faith. You know, I I wanted them to understand the characters of the Bible, right? Who is Joseph? Who is Moses? Who is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Goliath? And, you know, I I want them to understand. And now as they're getting older, I'm, I'm shifting that. I want them to understand sort of the logic of the Bible. How's it put together? What's being talked about there? How does this thing work? What's happening in the mechanics of the scriptures? But here's what I realize, and here's what I realize with youth ministry, that knowledge does not a disciple make. Okay? There are people who can quote theology left and right. They can give you a sermon like I'm giving you right now. They can break down a passage. They speak and read and write Greek and Hebrew. 
but they don't know God. They don't know him. See, there's a shift that takes place when we stop just knowing about God and we begin to know him personally, intimately. We talk to him. He talks to us. There's a living and vibrant relationship. It's no longer master-servant. I say, you do. Okay? It's not that at all. Now, it's father-son. It's adoption. It's, it's a part of the family. The one who loved me. You see where that gets personal? It's not just theoretical, Jesus died for the world. It's personal and intimate. It's for me that he did this. He loved me and he gave himself for me. And Paul says, I am trusting in that alone. All my eggs, all my eggs, every single one of them is in that basket right here. Everything that I have put my hope in, everything that I have believed is all right here. It's resting upon the fact that he loved me, that he gave himself for me and that I am made right with God, not because I have morning devotions, not because I don't listen to secular music, not because I don't drink beer or I come to church five times in a week or I lead my family in devotion. I am justified with God because Jesus took my sin. Because Jesus made me right with the Father. And now because of that, the life that I now live, trusting in Jesus, is, is a life of relationship. Hey, Christian, can I ask you a question? When you weigh out the bulk of your life as a disciple of Jesus, how much of your time is spent interacting with people about Jesus, and how much of your time is actually spent interacting with Jesus? Can I ask you that? I mean, just in your own heart right now, would you just do some examination? Would you just lay yourself open before the Lord? How dependent in daily life are you upon the risen Savior, Jesus Christ? Are all your eggs in one basket? Have you trusted in him and him alone? Is there something else that you're doing that you think is going to somehow gain you an advantage? It's Jesus plus morning devotionals. It's Jesus plus Jesus calling. But where are you at? You see, because for Paul, this is a love worth fighting for. He goes, no way would I go back. No way. I lived that life. I lived this life where all I did was march around, obeying orders, keeping rules, doing all this stuff. He's like, Man, I could never go back to that. For me, he says, that was slavery. It was slavery to live according to rites and rules and rituals. Where I live right now is in the freedom of relationship with my God. I talk to him, and he talks to me, and he loves me. He proved it at the cross when he, he loved me and he gave himself for me, but he also proves it every day because I live in dependence upon him for everything. You see, this was the whole point. If you go way back to the Garden of Eden, 
Man was made to live in fellowship with God. I love, I love the analogy of a hand inside of a glove, right? A glove, I had a glove, I just lay it here on the, the, the pulpit here. It's lifeless and inanimate and it does nothing and accomplishes nothing. But all of a sudden, if I take my life, if I take my power to animate and I stick it inside of the glove, all of a sudden it becomes an extension of who I am. And Paul is saying to these early Christians in Galatia, that's the life God has purchased for you. Why would you ever go back? Why would you ever go back to rule keeping? Be filled with him, the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm living in relationship with Jesus. I know him. I talk to him. He talks to me. And this is the life that I now live. I would never, ever trade it for anything else. Matter of fact, in another place, he says, the life I gave up to follow Jesus, I count as dung. I'm always surprised when I drive by the dog park and I see somebody stick their hand in a plastic bag. Why? You know, why? And Paul says the same thing. Why go back? You know what you're doing? You're sticking your hand in a plastic bag. Don't reach for that stuff. Don't reach for that life. Listen, press on for the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Know him. Know him. Love him. Pursue him. Live for all he is worth. Let your life be reflective of the value of the relationship that you have with Jesus. And don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I thank you for this word. Thank you for the reminder of your grace. Thank you for all that you have done to fight for our freedom. In so many ways, Lord, your last cry on the cross was the same as William Wallace's. You cried out for freedom for our sake. You died for our freedom, that we might know you and love you and follow you all of our days. Lord, if we have somehow in our, our mismanagement of our spiritual lives or somehow we've gotten off course and we've begun in any way to, to go back to a life of slavery. We're trusting in other things other than you to make us right with the Father. God, draw us back to the simplicity of the gospel. Lord, if, if there's a shift that's taken place in our lives where we know all kinds of things about you, we have conversations about you, and we, we talk to others about you, but we don't spend any time with you, God, would you change us and draw us back would you cause us to repent? Would you rebirth in us a newness and a vibrancy to our relationship with you? God, have mercy on your people. Be patient with our times of wandering and keep us close. When we stray, Lord, may your word 
And may the Spirit and may the fellowship of the believers around us draw us back to you and you alone. Bless your people. I pray that your word would be a, a seed planted in their hearts and that it would bear fruit and bring glory to your kingdom. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Amen.